Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Gridiron Show, and what a show we have for you today as we begin our focus on the draft. We've got, uh, well, not only Simon Clancy and Matt Sherry breaking down this year's offensive class, we're also joined by Senior Bowl Director Jim Nagy offering his exclusive insights to Gridiron. This is the Gridiron Show. Uh, you're listening to The Gridiron Show, Will, Gavin, and, uh, well, I mean, I'm just here for the sake of doing a, um, just doing a little uh, a little intro for the sake of the guys, uh, to let you know that, as always, as our draft coverage builds up and continues, we've got some fantastic stuff coming up for you, both in the form of the latest edition of the magazine, big draft preview special, including our exclusive interview with Tour. The man who'll probably go at two to the Chargers. I have to say that in case Simon actually bothers listening to the show. Uh, we'll also have uh, some of this interview with Jim Nagy in there as well. And there'll be um, there'll be plenty of fantastic draft coverage. Uh, you can also find that on our Instagram at UK Gridiron and on our Twitter page at Gridiron as well. But for today, I think the bulk of the show needs to go to the men truly in the know when it comes to the draft. Breaking down the offensive class and talking with Senior Bowl Director Jim Nagy. Let's hear from Matthew Sherry and Simon Clancy. So let's talk about the NFL draft, Si. Um, obviously, you are the man when it comes to this. We've just put our draft issue to print, which basically is your entire issue. <laughs> and, and, and I think, interestingly, when we've had discussions over the years, I, I can't remember with Patrick Mahomes whether he ended up being the number one quarterback, but it was certainly in the conversation. And I feel like we have, throughout the time we've done this, not always necessarily agreed with convention, and that's the case in this issue as well. You have Tua Tungavailoa rated as your number one player in this draft. Just explain why. Um, I think a number of factors. Consistency. Um, I think just being able to operate at the highest level, which he's done over a consistent period of time. Um, obviously, having the Alabama team around him helps, but you know people use that uh, to knock him, and yet we're not doing the same conversation about Joe Burrow yet. You know, He's got the best offensive line in the country. Jamar Chase won the Bolitnikov. Justin Jefferson's going to be a first-round pick. Terrace Marshall's a very good player. Thaddeus Moss is a really good college tight end. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a great running back. You know, there's talent there with Joe Burrow as well. So, But I just think the traits that he brings to the game, you know, he's six foot and obviously convention has changed as we've discussed many times with Drew Brees, with Russell Wilson, but in the last couple of years, certainly with Baker Mayfield, with Kyler Murray, the six foot quarterback because of the way college football offenses are changing is no longer the kind of the, you know, the career doesn't end now when you get to the NFL if you're six foot, that six five, 225 pound quarterback thing that we always kind of grew up believing was the only way to be is now no more. Um, and, And the accuracy the field vision, the ability to manipulate defenders with his eyes. You go back to the national championship game that he won when he came off the bench to replace Jalen Hurts and his uh, his 41-yard touchdown. You, you you look at the All-22 of that and see how he froze Dominic Sanders, the, the safety, just by manipulating the eyes. He knew Devonta Smith was over there. He knew he was getting open, but he just had to hold the safety and then rifle it in for the touchdown. And that, just that's had... rare in the NFL, isn't it? Never mind oh, a true freshman walking into a national championship game, having really never been a starter outside of, well, never played outside of playing in you know, the fourth quarter when games are out of hand. Absolutely. And you go back to high school and you, you can see him at the Elite 11, uh, the, the, the highly rated uh, high school seniors competition that Trent Dilfer runs. And you can see him doing that, using his eyes to manipulate players, to move them out of position so that he can then make often tight window throws, which he does. But just some of the things that you just can't teach, like I said, innate accuracy, the ability to manipulate the pocket, to use his footwork, to step up. And, you know, I'm reminded some, I, I suppose, of Dan Marino, arguably the most unathletic quarterback that you, you would ever see. But his ability just to 
to have a sixth sense in the pocket just to step up, just to move left or right, to be able to avoid a pass rush. Was never going to do it with his athletic talent, but was just to be able to do it with his mind. And, uh, and that's what Tua has. And I think Gary Danielson, the CBS commentator, said something very apposite about him, which is that a lot of quarterbacks see fences. They see picket fences on the field. Tua just sees open spaces. And I, and I think that's really true. Um, and, you know, people will say, look, he's throwing to four first-rounders, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, both will go in the first round this year. Devonta Smith, Jalen Wardle will go in the first round next year if they're both healthy. Um, and, yeah, that helps, of course. But you still have to get the ball there. It still has to be on time. It still has to be perfectly in stride. And, look, he's not throwing to, you know, he's not throwing into massive windows. You, you go back and really study his throws and I've seen every throw he's made at Alabama and a number of throws he's made at, at St. John's High School in Hawaii and you know he is making NFL throws in every game um, and is doing it consistently to the level that you would like to see a, a franchise quarterback do. Interesting you mentioned about Joe Burrow and his support and cast and that that isn't a stick that's used to beat him but one of the pieces we've got in Gridiron as well as a an exclusive interview with Tua this month is Another piece you've put together, which is all about the LSU draft class, and it's it's we think you know as many as sixteen guys who could ultimately be drafted, which would set a record for for, for players from a single school in a, in a single year. So so why do you think that is? Is it because I guess with two of the, it, it feels like the very best of the talent around him is condensed into areas to help him. You know that there are four first round wide receivers, there are two probable first round tackles is that the reason do you think or, or is it or is it something different to that a little bit i think and i, and I think part of it is the fact that two has been around for a while and it's almost like you know there's been an expectation ever since pretty much ever since he he arrived at alabama you know he came with a high reputation came off the fact that he won the elite 11 um and was kind of almost deified in a way when he got to Tuscaloosa that he was going to be the guy. Obviously, then expectations go through the roof when he comes in, brings Alabama back from 20 to 6, 20 to 7 down, whatever it was in that national championship game, comes back and beats Georgia 26-23 on the, uh, on the game winner at the end of the game, throws three touchdowns, including, you know, that incredible moment, that incredible sort of 40-second span where he's sacked um, by Lorenzo Carter on, set, on first down for a massive 16-yard loss gets into second and 26 and rips the game winner. I mean, the expectations just go through the roof. And over the next two years, he puts together some of the most remarkable performances you've seen in college football. So I think part of it is that he's trying to live up to an expectation. And people have just said, he's going to be great. He's going to be great. And people are kind of finding reasons to knock him. And, and in a way, Joe has come in and, you know, almost as the underdog, the guy that... Cinderella you know, couldn't story be out, a little bit, isn't it? A little bit. Couldn't, couldn't beat out JT Barrett, couldn't beat out uh, Haskins, Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, so transferred. Had a sort of a, you know, an average year. And I know you were really high on him last year, one of the few people that were. Um, and sort of picked it up down the stretch, had a great game against Auburn, had a great game against UCF in the in the bowl game. Um, but, you know, came into the season as sort of a late-round free agent-type quarterback and then just turned in probably the greatest year in, in college football history in terms of quarterback performance. And it's sort of Johnny-come-lately, I think, with Joe. Um and look, I, I I hate to say this, but I would I would suspect probably the colour of Tua's skin probably has something to do with it as well. You, you know, look where we're talking with the greatest rule in the world. I, I think black players, black quarterbacks are looked on as slightly lesser than white ones. Uh, I know that's probably a you know a hipster thing to say, but I think it's probably true. But I think also you just take both of them actually, and you just look at the personalities they have. You know, we talk about the on-field stuff. Let's talk about the off-field stuff. You know, both of them clean kids. You know, Joe, just an incredible will to win. Same with Tua, incredible person, incredible personality. They're both guys that you would build and you would be comfortable building your franchise around, not just because of what they do on the field, but because of what they do off it and the fact that they're both leaders, both alpha males. I mean, part of the piece on Tua that I put in the magazine this month, two stories from a, from a guy that works in Alabama, who said that, you know, when they lost uh, to Auburn uh, a couple of years ago, um, went back this, into the, this was before the national championship game. This was before the this is an amazing story. I, I must say. Yeah, so they lost to Auburn, and uh, and it looked like not so. Not only were they not going to get into the SEC title game, but almost certainly not going to get into the college playoff. Um, and it came down to that vote. They got in. Ohio State were were left out. Um, uh, and the Bama staffer said, you know, you went back into that locker room, and it was you know Minka Fitzpatrick, Jalen Hurts. Although Jalen was young, but obviously still a leader. Yeah, Jonah Williams, um, Bo, Bradley Bozeman, you had Calvin Ridley, Irv Smith, um, Quinn and Williams, all those guys that were in there. The linebackers were Shannon, was Matt Wilson, um, all those guys that were in the locker, Ronnie Harrison, all these big leaders. Uh, and, my, and my source was like, you know, 
it was utterly silent. You could have heard a pin drop. And say, but the only voice that you could hear was the backup, true freshman quarterback going around to everybody and saying, come on, it's gonna, we've got this, we've got this. You know, let's believe, let's believe. Pick yourself up. Let's go again. Let's go again. You know, and it was, and the staff was just like, you know, people, people took notice. And then the week they got into the, they got into the playoffs and they, so the week before they played Clemson, was it right? Yeah, they played Clemson in the yeah, semis. Yeah, played Clemson in the semis that year. So they played Clemson in the semi and, and Jalen got the flu that week. And so it was literally a week of tour, but actually ironically leading up to that George to leading up to the Clemson game. And the staffer said it was the cleanest week of practice he'd ever seen in all his time at Alabama. And he's still there now. Um, and it was just like, you know, this is a true freshman kid who'd never started for the team before. And not only were they smooth on the field, but the, the, the mentality in the huddle, the leadership that he was showing, he said he was like, a, it was like he was the four year starter and that he was preparing for his final game, not a true freshman who was preparing for his first game. Oh, which also just happened to be a um, uh, a college playoff semi-final against the defending national champions. So it was just, you know, it was extraordinary to hear those sorts of tales. But you know, they are not few and far between when you hear you know stories about Tua. And and I think that hits to me on the crux of how I view quarterbacks, and certainly in the time I've been evaluating, I'm interested to get your take on it because you've been you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. But ultimately, the the reality for me with quarterbacks is I want to see that ability in the biggest moments and whether there's a debate, are you elevating yourself or are you simply staying at a level when others fall apart in the, in the, in the moments of those magnitude? I would say for me with, with both Joe Burrow and Tour actually, that the separating factor with the pair of them. And another guy I'll put in the mix here is, is, um, is Jake from as well, who I would say of the quarterbacks in the class, the, the, the three that I would pinpoint is when I've seen them consistently in those big moments needing to deliver, they've done it. Now, I would say Tua and, and um, Burrow have done this at a higher level, which is why, for me, they're ranked higher. But how much do you put stock in that? Because I, I do feel generally like it translates, and we have seen Justin Herbert have opportunities in big games and consistently fail to take them. You know, And I can think of other quarterbacks in college who... We're exactly like, I mean, Tom Brady's a great example. You know, late sixth round pick, had those comeback moments at, at Michigan in the senior season against Michigan State, get good games against Ohio State, against Alabama. You know, and it generally does translate, doesn't it? It's very rare that you see a guy fail to do that in college and then go into the NFL and suddenly acquire it. It is a, an innate skill that, that I'm not sure can be taught. Exactly, and that's one of the things that really makes me nervous about Justin Herbert, you know, who has a phenomenal skill set. You know, he's a phenomenal physical specimen with a massive arm and is capable of, you know, really, really incredible throws. But literally until his final game, he he, he couldn't win a big game. You, you go back through his career, you know, you look at the Stanford game two years ago. His first half against Stanford was one of the best first halves of, of football I've, ever, I've seen in a long time from a quarterback, just throw after throw after throw, accurate, back shoulder, you know, tight window throws, NFL caliber throws from the short side to the long side of the field, so showing off that arm strength, running for first downs, all those sorts of things. Second half fell apart. Stanford came back, beat them in overtime. And really that final game, the Rose Bowl game, right at the end of the game, 43 of his career was the first real big game that you could say he'd actually she won and he didn't do it with his arm he did it with his legs <clears throat> that's the thing that concerns me and I think if you look at Joe you know Joe beat seven top 10 teams this past year for LSU you know you look at the games that he you know the, there is nobody else that he could have beaten Everett Georgia Alabama Auburn Florida it's all out there Texas you know he, he couldn't have done anymore in terms of just being able to shine brightest in the big moments same with Tua you look at the comeback game from the injury against LSU they were down he was the guy that was bringing them right back he was the guy that kept them in the game yeah. stepping up in that national championship game you know, even, the, even the national championship game against Clemson where he didn't play you know amazingly well they ended up losing in Trevor Lawrence's first season but you know he still was making you know you go back and if you watch that game in its entirety you go back and you look at some of the throws that he made given as well the fact that Three weeks earlier, he was at the Heisman Trophy ceremony. He was on a cart, a push yeah. cart, where he's, it was literally his knee was balanced on the cart and he was, he was pushing it along. And there's a throw that he makes where he rolls out to the left-hand side and throws back against his body down the sideline to Jerry Judy. And you just think, I, I have no idea. That's just a God-given innate ability to do that. Um, but I, I, I completely agree. And look, there's always going to be outliers. You know, Carson Wentz, you know, North Dakota State, 
you know, comparatively speaking, wasn't playing in, in a hundred against you know Alabama against one hundred and ten thousand people at Bryant Denny. He wasn't playing in national championship games. He still, he still won big games in his exactly. own. You know, exactly. it wasn't a hundred thousand people, but North Dakota State were winning national championships in in their own you know Absolutely. level of competition. But but just to be able to do that, to be able to 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 be able to get across the line in big important games when the spotlight is upon you. That's really important, I think, and, uh, and I know that for evaluators, that's very important as well. Is the tour? I mean, let's let's forget Burrow for now. He's had a season for the ages. The one guy who I think right now we would be debating with uh, with him is Tua, whether or not for the for the obvious mm. with with the injury issue. So let's let's move that aside now. I think the debate to me is Tua and, and Herbert. Who goes number two? Um, it's this is the age old debate, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned the. The, the black quarterback stigma, but you know, I don't want to make it about that. But Justin Herbert is the six foot five ish, big air, big arm, stereotypical. You draw a quarterback, that's what it looks like Absolutely. historically. And 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 regardless of what people think and how much the game's evolved, that stereotype still weighs heavily on the minds of many scouts in the league. I've spoken to lots of lots of people around the league about that, and it does. Tour is a little bit more new school, you know, playmaker, a bit more in that in that Russell Wilson moulds, uh, you know, a little, a little bit like Wentz to a degree as well. You know, the player's never dead. He's, he's got that style of play. But is that part of the, 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 the thing here as well, that evaluators, are, are they struggling with that bias in their own minds for that? I mean, Justin Herbert is the guy you would draw, isn't he? That's, that's yeah, the reality. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, that certainly plays into it. And I think scouts, you know, a lot of scouts are old school. They've done it for a long time. They've done it their own ways. You go, you, you know, you go and look at things like, you know, the, for the people listening and the people watching or whatever, if you're, if you're watching scouts and, and evaluators at the Combine, for example, you will see if you're watching the 40-yard dash on, on NFL Network, you will see guys lined up mostly at the at the 40 yard line but you'll see people at the 10 yard line 20 and 30 at the start but all there sat there if this is my my phone is my stopwatch they're all sitting there pointing their phone or their stopwatch ready to take a timing well it's being electrically timed now there's, there's a there's a reason for that and it's two parts essentially the first part is that's the way they've always done it so why bother changing and if they've done that historically for 10 15 18 20 years that they've been doing it if they start doing it another way, all that back catalogue of stuff and all the comparison data is yeah. going to be is going to be skewed because they are working it on their own. You know, if they're sat there and they get a, you know, Chase Young runs a four fifty eight on the stopwatch of Fred Smith, the scout for the Baltimore Ravens, and yet the official time is four sixty six. Fred Smith is going to go with his own time because historically that's what he's always done. Then he can go back to the Ravens, you know, input that data, and you see that Matthew Judon ran a four seventy seven. You know, um, you know all these guys that they've these defensive ends that they've they've got through the Baltimore system. The second part, obviously, is that practically when you go to almost all of the college um, pro days. It's stopwatch only. There is no electrical timing system. There is nothing to be able to do it. So that's the flip side of it. But yeah, so I think essentially to that end, I think there's just a there's just a historical guys are kind of I don't want to say stuck in their ways, but you look how long it took to embrace the changes in college football, the four and five wide receiver sets, the fact that we were talking about six foot quarterbacks being actually you know as much a part of the future as everybody else. So to that end, Justin really does fit the old school uh, dynamic of how you think a quarterback would be. The interesting thing about the Justin Tua debate is that, you know, I've spoken to a number of people, both in scouting and in the media, both at a general manager level, at a scout level, and, you know, serious media members who are members, for example, of the Pro Football Writers of America. So, you know, these are not just, you know, beat writers for the Hackensack Times. These are, you know, proper Sports Illustrated, you know, these sorts of things. And they, they will tell you that in NFL circles that, that there are, Justin Herbert will rate out higher than Tua. You hear that over and over and over again, that teams value Justin Herbert much more than they value Tua. And I, you know, as much as I think the Dolphins will take Tua at five, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they took Justin Herbert at five. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if, say, a team like the Chargers on draft night traded up to three above Miami and everybody's like, oh, they've moved for Tua and they end up taking Justin Herbert. Because that would not surprise me just given that there are too many people with too much knowledge 
for this to be a smokescreen. And look, every single year that the smokescreen season starts and you hear a load of stuff and a negative stuff about that just weigh on your mind. You think, is that, and then it turns out to be the way that you expected it to be. But it does feel a little bit like the conversation is just moving in a direction that makes you actually believe what's what's being said. Too many people are saying that, that the NFL prefers Justin Herbert. Interesting. And then in terms of the rest of the offense, um, one, I mean, the thing that stuck out to, to both me and you all, yeah, when we've been chatting about this, because obviously as much as everything comes together at this time of year, it's kind of an evolving process over the course of the season is is the headline of the offense is the wide receiver group, isn't it? I mean, you, I think you wrote in the in the magazine as many as twenty five could go in the first three rounds, which would be, I mean, utterly astonishing. Nearly a third of the of of the picks. Um, just how good is this? Where does it rank to you in terms of not just a wide receiver, but in terms of individual classes that you've seen in your time scouting? Um, I think I think it's a very very good wide receiver class, and I think it's very strong at the top. You know, I think what you what you find at the top as well is players who are very good at the sorts of things that you don't expect players to be good at. So you have receivers who are good at blocking. So CD Lamb is a decent blocker, but you have receivers. You know, you, there's two potential receivers in the first round in uh, Jerry Judy and Justin Jefferson, who are very, very nuanced route runners. You know, you do not see the ability to run routes like Jerry Judy can run routes coming out of college. That's just a rare thing. You know, you, you, one of the things you hear most of all in scouting is, you know, he's going to need to improve his route running. Um, and, uh, you know, that is, uh, that to me is just not the, is not the case at this top end level. And you've got, you've essentially got all sorts of, you know, you've got your speedsters like Jalen Rager. You've got the guys who are amazing after the catch like CD Lamb. You've got the nuanced route runners like Justin Jefferson who can find, you know, will, will probably play in the slot, moved from outside to inside last year under Joe Brady uh, and absolutely thrived, was, had more than 100 catches. You know, there's a guy that can, is, you know, you talk about two are finding space, Justin Jefferson can find space. You've got a guy like LaVisca Chenault who can play receiver, who can play almost like an inline tight end. You can move him around the formation. You can play him in the slot. You know, he's got the speed to get deep and he can out jump people, but he can also line up as a wildcat quarterback. He can play running back because he did very successfully at Colorado. You know, there's a guy that can hurt you in different areas. You've got guys like Denzel Mims and Brandon Ayuk, you know, big receivers, great after the catch, Ayuk especially, good nuanced route runner, strong at the top of his route. But then you just go down, you know, Michael Pittman. You go back and watch Michael Pittman's game against Utah. You're looking at Utah secondary with Jalen Johnson and Terrell Burgess and those guys. You know, the, the first day, first day guys, um, and no, sort of first day guys, uh, second day guys, around two and three guys. Um, you know, he's he, he's dominating. He's absolutely dominating. You go down to you know SMU's James Prochet. You go and watch Prochet play against um, play against Tulsa, uh, the overtime game against Tulsa. And you just think this is Jarvis Landry. I'm looking at here. This is a you know this is a guy that's going to come in day one, play in the slot, and be an absolute you know first down machine. So all the way through, and I think. I think in terms of how you rank it against, it's a very, very strong one. This is a really, really strong position. And I think it's, uh, I think it also then you, you have to look back at the wide receiver free agency class to realize why that was such a, a dead zone for receivers. You know, look, Robbie Anderson waited two or three, what was it two weeks after free agency started to get, to even get a sniff of a deal. And I think it's because everybody just thought, why would I pay 10, 12, $15 million a year for a wide receiver when I know that, there are guys I can come in, you know, and take in the second and third round. You, you know, who's going to do for me what Terry McLaurin did for Washington, you know, later around or Preston Williams did for Miami. All those kind of guys, the mid to late round guys, are going to come in, you know, right the way down the board. You know, Devin Duvernay, who could end up the, the Texas kid, who could end up being like uh, um, Kurt, like uh, the kid at uh, San Francisco Samuel at San Francisco. You got Adebo yeah. Samuel. Yeah, I mean, you've got all these different. Um, different styles of players that are just going to be able to come in and uh, and really perform from a very early early um, early starting point. The interesting one is is Jerry Judy to me, simply because it almost feels like without doing anything wrong at all, he has fallen in the minds of people. He does strike me as the kind of player that has fallen in the minds of um, people analysing the draft but will still end up potentially going in the top 10 because I can just see a team falling in love with how advanced he is I mean and wide receiver is a is a bust position isn't it you know that you get guys 
we were talking about Tavon Austin the other day and how we both thought he was going to be an elite, elite slot player in the NFL gadget. You know, you looked at Tavon Austin almost as a guy who was so explosive that he was a no-lose pick because he could do so many things that he would do any number of them well and would be a really good player in the NFL. So it is a position where you see busts, but Judy is so advanced and it just feels like, again, in the NFL, I can. I mean, I could see a team in trading up for Jerry Judy you know I just think there will be there'll be two or three teams who fall in love with him and to me I put him as he as a physical specimen he isn't Julio Jones or or that kind of player but to me he might be the most complete wide receiver I've ever seen come out it at the at this point of his career now there is there is a limit to the upside physically but I would argue that the the ceiling of his talent is Antonio Brown, who to me has been the best wide receiver in the NFL for the last decade outside of his recent issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two things that maybe knocked Jerry a little bit in this past year, and you, you know, you say knocking inverted commas because it wasn't like he had a, you know, he didn't fall off a cliff, um, were that he had a couple of uncharacteristic drops. Sometimes he lets the ball into his body a little bit. He dropped a, a you know, a key touchdown on the money against LSU in the end zone, a deep ball from from Tua. Um, occasionally, you wonder how, you know, you'd love to have seen him against Ohio State, for example. You'd love to have seen him against Jeffrey Akuda or or Damon Arnett or Sean Wade, just to see how he was going to get on. You know, he was really pressed when he was really pressed from start to finish that would have been a fascinating battle I would not be surprised to see him be the second receiver off the board I've got to say because in the main you know it's my understanding that that Kyler Murray is banging the drum pretty hard for um, C.D. Lamb Lamb to to be taken with the eighth pick that Arizona have and obviously they need a tackle um, and they could take a tackle there but I think he is you know I mean you just uh, uh, and whilst you think wait they've they've just traded for Nuke Hopkins they've got um, uh, they've got uh, Larry Fitzgerald they've got uh, the kid they took in there Christian Kirk why do they need another receiver? Well, obviously the Cliff Kingsbury offense, you know. Yeah, you can gonna, have four and five on the field at the same time. It's going to be very, very hard to stop when you say, you know, I've got who am I, who's my number one, who's my number one corner going on when I've got Luke Hopkins, Christian Kirk, you know, CD Lamb and Larry Fitzgerald. That that that's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Um. So I, so I wouldn't, you know, I, I think Jerry Judy will end up being an Oakland Raider. I've got to say, it just it just seems to fit everything that that the Oakland Raiders. And I think one thing with with those guys last year, you look at Mayock's first draft, they put such a big emphasis on those big school guys. You know, Ooh. I'm talking Clemson, yeah. Alabama, you know, that that was basically their draft, wasn't it? A lot of guys yeah. from from those real top-end competition and, and, you know, he obviously fits that bill. And you've just Bear made the comparison. Josh Jacobs. You've just made the comparison of Antonio Brown, the guy that Mike Mayock traded for. Yeah. I mean, we're essentially getting Antonio Brown, you know, in a in a rookie form. And I think, you know, you talk about, uh, to me, uh, you know, and we talk about, we, we like you mentioned, we talked about Tavon Austin and we talked about Ted Ginn and what, what Teddy was able to do at Ohio State and, uh, you know, and the fact that although he's carved out a pretty good niche as a number two slash number three and is still in the league, you know, didn't go, didn't train on to be the kind of receiver that, that teams hoped he would be. Um and I always think that it gets to this point where you look at, you know, people are talking about guys that are coming off the radar and maybe guys that have had good combines or, you know, in previous years, good pro days and, you know, flash a little bit in the, you know, the senior bar or whatever. And I always think that teams begin to forget about just really good college football players. Don't forget about the really good college football player. You know, you're not going to go, to my end, you're not going to go bust by taking Jonathan Taylor. You're not going to go bust by taking Jerry Judy. You're not going to go bust by taking Anton Winfield. You know, really good college players are really good college players. It becomes almost the search for that, for that something extra. And ignoring, like, guys like, exactly the players you've just mentioned fit into that category of, you know what you're getting. So people want... Well, guys, Thomas where you don't know what you're getting, but what you might get is up here kind of thing. Exactly. Andrew Thomas is another. You know, these are guys that have consistently done it at the very highest level in college football, but their ceilings, their overall ceilings may not be, you know, Jerry Judy's ceiling may not be as high as Henry Ruggs, for example. You know, Jonathan Taylor's ceiling might not be as high as DeAndre Swift, for example. Andrew Thomas's ceiling might not be as high as Mackay Beckton's ceiling. But their floor is significantly higher. Don't, you know, don't overdraft people for higher ceilings and, uh, you know, with lower floors when you know that there's guys, you know, that, yeah, you know, I, I could predict, you know, I would be very, very surprised if any of those guys that I mentioned, Judy, 
um, Winfield, Taylor. I could pick out you know a load of guys. The tour is another one. You know, if he stays injury free, but it's guys like that, just really good, solid college football players who have done it consistently, week in, week out. You know, meat and potatoes guys. Fill your roster with those because you you won't go far wrong. And let's um, we'll just do offense in in this episode, and then we're going to hear from Jim Nagy, the the director of the Senior Bowl, who was formerly a scout with with the Patriots, amongst others. Um, offensive line. I, this this is a nice draft for offensive line in the fact that that there seems to be a nice spread across all areas of the line. I always feel like with the offensive line, you get drafts with a few good tackles, draft with good interior guys, but and and maybe you always get one or two decent centers. But actually, there's Right across the line here, wherever your holes are, you're probably going to be able to find somebody, certainly in those first to third rounds, who who might come in and, and be plug and play. Yeah, I think the interior line especially doesn't have, you know, a lot of big names, a lot of, you know, certainly a lot of first round talent. But I think what you're going to find is in the sort of the 50 to 110, 112 area, there's some really solid players. Damian Lewis at LSU, Jonah Jackson, the Rutgers transfer, who played really well at left guard for um, for Ohio State. And you've got a run of centers, which for me starts with Cesar Ruiz uh, of Michigan. who I think Ruiz is, Ruiz is incredible. I mean, I watch yeah. Michigan a lot and so athletic. I mean... The, a sender for the modern NFL, I think. Yeah, I, I think Cesar Ruiz probably ends up going in the first round. But then you, you know you've got others: Matt Hennessy at Temple, Lloyd Cushenbury at LSU, Tyler Bialash of uh, of Wisconsin, who was going to be a first round pick last year, didn't have a great season, but you know didn't get bad overnight. I think there's a whole raft of players. Danny Ball, you know, there's a kid at Fresno State, Nathan Muti, who he looks like Larry Allen on tape. He's unfortunately been you know um, struck down. He's played only played 18 games in four years because he's been injured a lot but if you can get him healthy you can get him right you've got a hell of a player there so there, are, there there's real talent there. And, and there's also you know, there's some smaller school guys Cameron Clark at Charlotte there's a kid at Louisiana Robert Hunt who's played tackle played right tackle playing inside and, and you know even past the top four tackles you know uh, and when we talk about the top four we talk about you know in any order really I think you can throw a blanket over all four of them Tristan Wirfs at Iowa Mackay Beckton at Louisville Andrew Thomas and then um, that we talked about at Georgia and Jedrick Wills of Alabama but I think beyond that you, know, you look at Lucas Niang of TCU now Niang got injured the back half of last year missed the last six games go back to, to the season before to the 2018-19 season I remember this game what you're about to talk about I think. yeah and watch him against Ohio State. Yeah. This is Lucas Niang, right tackle against one-on-one with no help, not being chipped, no tight end, one-on-one against Nick Bosa, against Chase Young, and against uh, Draymond Jones when they moved Draymond Jones out uh, inside out. Um, and he was one-on-one against those three players throughout the entire game. He didn't give up a single sack. He barely gave up a, a pressure. He absolutely dominated. And he got to the point where they were literally they were literally rotating Nick Bosa out and sticking him back on the left side because he was just getting no change out of Niang at all. And poor Chase Young was just like couldn't get. I mean, couldn't get within a within a postal code of uh, uh, of uh, of Robinson the TCU. I mean, court. this is but, this is a guy who was nearly defensive player of the year as a rookie and, and somebody yeah. else who is going to go in the top three, probably second overall in this draft. Yeah. I mean, and Sean, Sean Robinson had had time. Uh, you know, TCU were in that game until the, uh, you know, ironically enough, Draymond Jones had an interception in the third quarter, ball got tipped in the end, it was returned and that broke the game open. Yeah. But, you know, that... That game was close, and it was close, and it sounds ridiculous, but it was close because Lucas Niang was keeping the elite players off of the quarterback who was able to make plays. And, you know, you go back and look at his take, never gave up a sack. I don't think he gave up a sack. I think he only gave up one, two pressures in, in, in two years as a starter. Matthew Peer, um, another really, really, a UConn, a really good left tackle. Ezra Cleveland is going to be a guy, probably needs to get a bit stronger in the, in the weight room, again, you know, a Boise State kid. But, you know, you go and look at some of his tape and you're like, this is a kid that's got the footwork and the lateral movement, the hips to play left tackle. He's going to go probably in the top 40, 50 picks. So the, the players are there. Um, but it always, as always, just comes down to, look, how can you find the, the right fit, the right need, um, and guys that are just going to fit that scheme. But, you know, like I said, right at the top, a guy like Damian Lewis at LSU, you know, Sadiq Charles, if he can get his off-field issues right, left tackle, you can play him either side. There's a starting swing tackle in the in, in the NFL if he's if he's mentally right. But a guy like Damian Lewis just went to the senior bowl, absolutely dominated, dominated Javon Kinlaw, who's a top 15 player. And you just think, there's a guy who's probably going to get late second, early third round, he's going to come in, be a plug-and-play starter, play for 10 years, have an absolutely superb career. Might not be a Hall of Famer, but it's just a, goes back to what I said, a solid, college football player who'll just fly under the radar a couple of pro bowls and, 
and just absolutely ball out for 10 years and you'll be like wow the value we got on that pick is just astounding and, and to wrap it up then two opposite position groups I think every year there's always a pretty strong running back class and this one's no different maybe lacking I mean I, I rate Jonathan Taylor a lot higher than, than basically anybody else because I, I would absolutely be willing to take him in the top 15 except for the worry of him having so many miles on the clock but really, there isn't there isn't a guy here in the conversation to be taken in the top fifteen, is there? It's a it's a lot of late first round pick guys, and then your usual array of guys in the middle, but and then and then tight end, which I think I think we'd be stunned if there'd be a if there was a tight end taken in the first round this year. Yeah, I mean, tight end for me is the worst position group in this draft, and I, I you know I think at the top of it, you're looking at guys like Adam Troutman, the Dayton tight end, who, who you know dominated at the, the small school level and you, I suppose you look you know you flip that to like two small school guys on defense Kyle Duggar at Lenoir Ryan and uh, Jeremy Chin at Southern Illinois uh, guys that obviously proved the senior ball they could take the step up Adam Drayton did the same at Dayton dominated that lower level came to the senior ball and played really really well in the practices um, and then it's really a hodgepodge of guys Cole Komet at Notre Dame who you know has only caught 17 passes but has you know, has athletic ability to get down the field. Albert O at Missouri, is he tough enough? He's certainly athletic enough, ran a 4-4 uh, in the combine, at the combine. Um, you know, there's there are Harrison Bryant, there's there's players there, but to me, there's just a load of backup tight ends, really. There's not, you know, you go down to somebody like Shane O'Grady at Arkansas, who, again, a bit like Sadiq Charles, if you can get his off-the-field issues sorted out, Shane O'Grady could be a really, really solid value pick for somebody in the sixth round if they're confident that he's sorted himself out. And, you know, that's a big if. Um, so to me, that's a really poor group. What about Thaddeus Moss, a guy who we've yeah. seen win a national yeah. title? Randy's kid, obviously. Uh, I like Thaddeus Moss. I think he's a good player. I think he could be a very interesting move tight end. Uh, I think he's got he's, good he's hands. He's a decent blocker as well, isn't he? He's not, yeah, it's he's not, not like that. some guys, you know, Evan Ingram or somebody where you see them and it's, they literally can't block at all. But there is something there he can do enough, I think. He's a bit grabby. He's a little bit grabby. He needs to be able to learn to use his hands a little bit better. He gets them outside on the shoulders rather than inside on the breath, on yeah. the chest, on the, you know, in here rather than on here because on there it's it's easy for for, for players to move and he's grabbing hold and, he, and you know there's a hole call. Get them in here. That's where you want the hands right in on the chest. Um, so that's but you know he can do it. He can definitely do it because he gets his pad level. He gets, he, you know, he, he, you can see his hips. You can see his knees bending. He's not, a, he's not a waist bender. That's not what you're looking for. Somebody who's going to be off balance and could be toppled over. He, he understands leverage. He understands positioning. It's just going to be coaching. Um, yeah, I like Moss, and I think he's got some talent. Um, the issue for Moss is obviously the Liz Frank injury in his foot that was discovered at the medical checks. Uh, and, and foot injuries for any, yeah, particularly for receivers well, and tight ends. Yeah, exactly. And ordinarily as well, you know. Any other year, you know, it would be fine, but there's not going to be any medical rechecks. How a team's going to really be able to get to him, and and I don't know where he's working out, but you know, only you can only go and see players. Let's say he's working out in the state of Louisiana. I think they live in in North Carolina. Um, so if they do still live in North Carolina, the Panthers are the only team that's going to be able to get to to see him. Teams are not allowed to cross straight state lines because of the coronavirus uh, rules that are in place that the NFL has set out. You know, So guys training in Florida, for example, Miami, Tampa, Jacksonville are able to go and access them with team doctors by driving. But you know, let's say the Dolphins are interested in tour. They cannot get to Nashville, to Tennessee because they cannot cross straight state lines. So you know, for, for guys that are injured, Mooty, Tua, Ashton Davis in California, you know, um, Thaddeus Moss, this is, a, this is an issue for them. As for the running back, like you say, look, I think a bit much like the offensive tackle, you could throw a blanket over Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who to me reminds me you know, physically and, and the way he moves of Emmett Smith. I'm not saying he's going to be Emmett Smith, but that's what he looks like. But he's also a bit Darryl, Darren Sproles in the running game as yeah. well, isn't he? Like he's, he's really versatile. Absolutely. I think in, the, in the passing game, sorry. Passing game, yeah. I think he offers a bit more than Sproles as an all-round player. Um, I think um, obviously DeAndre Swift at Georgia is a very good player. You know, he's probably the you know I think in, for NFL teams he's probably their number one back. I think Cam Akers at Florida State he played behind some terrible lines on bad offenses. Uh, you with know, bad yeah, he was the yeah, god with bad coaching. He was the number one high school player um, in, in the country. Um, so I think you know there, there is talent at that running back position. Um, J.K. Dobbins obviously at Ohio State, but then you go down, you know, those 
late second day, early third day guys, Joshua Kelly at UCLA, Darrington Evans at, at, at Appalachian State. I think AJ Dillon is going to be, you know, you're going to be talking about guys like AJ Dillon as a, as a, um, a Derek Henry type, a one cut and go big guy at 252 power. I mean, he jumped 41 inches at the combine mm. and a 449. I mean, absolute physical specimen. You look at some of his tape of Boston College, he's an absolute beast. Um, you know, so there's definitely players out there. And I think, you know, even if you're looking, you know, JJ Taylor at Arizona is probably going to be a late round guy. Malcolm Perry, the Navy quarterback slash running back. These are guys that could, you know, Malcolm Perry could end up being a Julian Edelman type. JJ Taylor could, be Austin, the next Austin Eckler. I mean, he's five foot six, 186 pounds. He absolutely just smashes through people. You know, you've got Zach Moss at Utah. The injuries are a bit of a concern, but it's a decent group. And much like any year, I think you're going to be able to find some some players in in some of the mid rounds where you just look at and you're like, wow, how did this guy ever get to the fifth round? Because he's, you know, here's another Philip Lindsay. Here's another, you know, Austin Eckler. These kind of late round free agent guys who just end up just performing well at the NFL level. Absolutely perfect. That is the offense broken down completely. We're going to do the defense early next week. And uh, I'm going to throw it now to my interview with, with Jim Nagy. And what's interesting, I think, we talk about the variance of opinions between people who, who really know what they're looking at, but just see it a very different way. Sai has obviously got a great track record. Jim Nagy differs to Sai in what he thinks on quarterbacks. So let, let's hear from him. He talks about the coronavirus in the NFL a little bit about the draft class and, and particularly the quarterback. So let's hear what Jim Nagy's got to say. First of all, from from, from your perspective, obviously the, the the current situation worldwide with with coronavirus, I guess, didn't didn't hit you in the day to day sense of the of the senior ball. But how much of an impact do you think it's having right now on on draft prospects and particularly those guys that maybe you see and, and others don't think about lower down the chain and their ability to go and visit teams and, and make that impression. Yeah, it's having a big impact uh, on everything. You know, it's the tentacles go everywhere um, in the scouting world right now, but it, it is impacting the, uh, you know, the smaller school players and the non-combine invitees the most. Uh, I think anyone that went through the process and got an all-star game invite you know, whether it was the senior bowl or one of the other ones and then got a combine invite. And then there's even a couple schools that uh, managed to squeeze in some pro days as well. So there's some guys that came to the senior bowl that, you know, really finished the process. You know, they, they all three stages, senior bowl, combine uh, and pro day. Um, so, you know, it's just there's missing data on a lot of players, um, depending on which team you speak with. You know, I talk to a lot of friends on a daily basis in the league and it's, it's usually between a quarter and a third of their draft board right now they have incomplete uh, information on. So, uh, you know, and where that affects guys is if, you know, you're graded at the same grade level as another player and, uh, you know, teams have everything on one player and, and you know, kind of half the picture on another player, they're obviously going to take the guy they have the more information on. So, uh, you know, and then the small school guys, it really affects those players that uh, when scouts went through the schools in the fall, um, you know, and liked a small school player, but had concerns about the level of competition and say that those players weren't invited to an all-star game. So you really couldn't reconcile that level of competition. Um, you, what you do as a scout, you know, it's, it's really important to get test numbers in the spring. So just to see, I mean, you might not see them on the field with, uh, you know, the bigger school players, the SEC, the big 10 players. Um, but if you at least have some test data, to compare what plays in the NFL, um, it's, it's very helpful. So if a, if a receiver goes to his pro day, a small school receiver goes to his pro day and jumps 40 in the vertical jump and, you know, 10 foot six in the broad jump and runs a low four, four, that might get him, you know, going from being an undrafted free agent to a, you know, it's where teams start taking chances, you know, taking shots on guys in the sixth or seventh round. So, uh, you know, I think you'll see more seniors get drafted this year in the past. Some of the, you know, a lot of these juniors that couldn't play in all-star games, um, you know, there's just not the exposure. There's not the familiarity. So there's a lot more question marks with those guys. So I do think you'll see more seniors drafted this year and less uh, small school non-combine players. 
Yeah, and how much does it in, does it impact the guys with with medical questions? Particularly, obviously, Tuatunga Vailoa is the the one that everybody would point to because it's often said that the combat with the combine, for example, that the medical recheck is almost as important as the as the actual few days in India that everybody watches on TV. So, so just how much are those guys said to be impacted as well? Yeah, again, it goes back to the non combine guys again, where uh, you know when you have the thirty visits per team. Um, you know, team teams, you know, usually allocate, you know, between 10 and 15 of those just for non-combine guys that they might have late draftable grades on, um, that they want to get a good medical evaluation on. They want to, they want to let their medical staff get their hands on those players and make sure they have a full medical evaluation. So that's a big part of it too. These 30 visits, you're, uh, it's impacting those guys. So now you're not going to, you're not going to have um, one. You're not going to have the test data on those players, on those non-combine players. But you're also not going to have um, a medical evaluation. So, you know, it's hard to draft a player if you don't know the what the full medical is. We, in my time with the Seattle Seahawks, that was my my previous job prior to taking uh, over at the Senior Bowl. You know, we had an instance a few years back where we drafted an offensive lineman from Marshall, and. Uh, we didn't have a full medical on him. He was a non-combine player, just a really good athlete on tape. And we thought he was, uh, you know, a good developmental prospect. Well, we get him out to Seattle after the draft and our medical staff diagnoses him with a heart condition and he never gets to play football again. So, I mean, it was really a, you know, wasted sixth round pick. Um, So yeah, those guys are, those are, those guys are for sure being impacted by this as well. And those top 30 visits as well can be important in other ways, can't they? I mean, I, I heard a story of, of Bill O'Brien saying that the, the, the day he knew that they would draft to Sean Watson was the day they got him into the building ahead of the draft and just in the cafeteria he saw players kind of radiating towards him. I, I guess, you know, the, there's, there's stories like that as well. I mean, this could fundamentally change what, what otherwise would have happened come, come draft day, even for, for, for prospects at the, at the higher end as well. Yeah, for sure. No, you, you, that's a great example. You get Deshaun in your building and you see how the other players re- react to him because you're going to have veterans in the building. Um, you might bring in multiple guys um, on a visit on the same day. And so to see, you know, that leaders, those leadership qualities kind of come out, that's, that's, that certainly happens. Um, you know, I think another thing that, that hurts guys are, are guys who have questions about their mental, uh, you know, their football intelligence. Yeah. So you'll also – in including the medical, you'll also allocate a lot of those spots to guys you have those questions about. So you'll bring them in, you'll get them with their position coaches and coordinators, and really uh, you might give them the playbook the first night they get into town and ask them to uh, review the playbook and then bring them in the next day and quiz them on that. So, uh, Or you go over their video with them. Um, so, yeah, that, and that helps clear up a lot of questions as well. Can this guy mentally handle our system or not? Um, so you're not getting those questions answered. And then, uh, you know, the other, really the other, it's medical, mental, and character. And, you know, there's a lot of players that have some character red flags coming out of the fall process, you know, at the schools. And you hear that from, from all your sources at the schools, um, you know, but you really, ideally, you'd love to hear it, you know, from the, out of the player's mouth himself and hear, hear his side of the story. Because usually when there's off-field issues, there's always two sides to that story. So you want to you bring those players in and spend time with them, too, to try to get a better handle on, on where they're at uh, from a character perspective, and teams can't do that either. So it's uh, it's really impacting a, a huge part of this draft process. Yeah, and and what is your view overall of of the quality of this of this draft class? Because it, it, I mean, as with any year, there are there are positions that are particularly strong, like wide receiver, and then maybe not so strong, like like tight end. It feels like this year. What's your view of it in terms of from the overall picture as it relates to to previous years that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's every year there's going to have positions of strength. Um, but no, overall, I think I think this is a good draft. I think there's uh, depth, really good depth at, at, at certain positions. Um, you know, you always you always try to gauge it. Uh, um, you know, like with, to what level did, did you start to drop off in terms of starters? Like, where do you where do you start drafting backups? And uh, I think in this draft, you're going to be able to draft starters at certain positions, you know, well into the fourth, sometimes the fifth round. I think you're going to be able to get starting receivers um, into day three. I think you're going to be able to get some starting offensive linemen into day three because I think there's going to be runs at other positions that push some of those offensive linemen down. Um, so, yeah, overall, I think it's, I think it's a, I like the depth of this draft. 
Have you? Um, I mean, I'd, I've been kind of really interested in the draft now for for six or seven years. I, I can't think that I've seen a single position class that is as strong as the wide receiver class this year. I mean, just just how good is it to, to your mind from from what you've seen? Uh, you know, it's very deep. I, I will say that. No, I I don't know if there's a, a truly truly elite receiver in this yeah. draft. I think Henry. I think Henry Ruggs from Alabama is the best one. I think he has the chance to, uh, you know, to be a, a star, if you will. Um, but there's not a Julio Jones. There's not the, the typical, your prototype 6'4", 225, 230-pound guy that runs, you know, high 4'3", low 4'4". There's just not that animal in this draft. Um, you know, from a, from a physical traits perspective, Denzel Mims from Baylor is probably the best one. Um, you know, he's 6'3", he ran... I had him four three two on my watch at the combine, which is really darn fast. And then his three cone of six 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 is is incredible for someone um, you know over six foot three. So, but no, it's it's very deep. Like I said, you're going to be able to get guys like Van Jefferson and from Florida. I mean, Van's going to be a starter in the league. You're going to be able to get those guys in the third and fourth round, and and uh, that's going to be the interesting part of, of to me. One of the interesting subplots of this year's draft is where does that run on receiver happen because you know, everyone knows how deep the class is. Now, why would you take, you know, why would you take one in the, in the teens somewhere when you know you can just turn around in second or third and, and get a starting level player? So that, to me, that's going to be the interesting part is when that run happens. Yeah, and, and, and what's your view of the, of the quarterback situation? Because, I mean, it, it's still remarkable to me with Joe Burrow in particular how, how if you'd have told any of us 12 months ago that he was going to be, even potentially a first-round pick, I think people might have been shocked, but certainly the slam-dunk, seemingly guaranteed number one overall pick. I mean, if, if anything, does that storyline just illustrate just the nature of <laughs> of this scouting process and sometimes how difficult it is to get a read on, on how things will play out? Yeah, you know, I've had to go back and uh, and look at Joe's tape from the year before. I've seen him play four times live over the last two years, two two times each the last two years, and met Joe at the, uh, the Manning passing camp last June was the first time I, I really got to meet Joe. Um, you know, so it's, it is remarkable, but going back and looking at last year's tape, really what happened at LSU is they got a lot better around Joe. You know, it wasn't Joe making this, um, dramatic leap in his play, although he did get, I mean, he did get better, but, um, it wasn't as dramatic as maybe the stats suggest, you know, they, they led the country in drops his junior year at LSU, they weren't very good up front on the offensive line. Um, you know, they were starting an undrafted free agent at running back ahead of Clyde Edwards-Alaire, which was, you know, obviously a mistake. So they got better around Joe. Um, and that's, uh, you know, to me, that's, that's really more, that, that's more than what they, they got better around Joe more than Joe got better himself. But yeah. I thought he was a pretty good player as a junior, but I'm with you. I mean, I, to say Joe would have been a first round pick up that junior tape, that would have been a stretch. Um, but no, I like the quarterback class. This is a, it's a unique year where I don't think all the guys being talked about in the first round. So Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Tua, and, uh, and Jordan Love, I think all those guys are legitimate first-round quarterbacks. I think they're all going to be successful starters. I also think Jake Fromm from Georgia yeah. is going to win a lot of games in that league. Um, whereas most years, I mean, I, to me, there's, most years there's two or three guys that, um, are being talked about in the first round, at least one or two that I think aren't going to pan out and be good NFL players. Um, and that's not the case in this year's draft. I think all these guys will be successful starters. Uh, to me, the the kind of contrast between Jake Fromm and, and Joe Burrow is, is an interesting one because it, it, it feels to me like if you swap the talent around them last year that maybe the, you could you could almost swap the their draft picks as well. I mean, just, and it is kind of the question I'm going to get onto with Jared Stidham a little bit later on, but does that kind of illustrate the, the almost tenuous nature of this process? Because as well as analyzing the, the traits and on the field, you, I guess it's almost, it's, it's incumbent upon scouts to almost make sure they're analyzing everything else around that. I mean, anybody who looked at that Georgia offense with the receivers that they sent to the NFL the previous year could see that, you know, he just didn't necessarily have the weapons around him. But he, if you look at his game and you look at the fact that he beat out Jacob Eason, another guy who might go in the first or, or second round this year, you know, there's a lot of things to like there, isn't there, as a, as a, as a prospect? 
Yeah, he, I mean, he beat out Justin. He held off Justin Fields, yeah. too, from Ohio State, who might be a first-round pick next year. So, no, you're absolutely right. When you evaluate the quarterback position, it is such a dependent position. And, uh, you know, they weren't as good around Jake this year. There's no question about that. Um, you know, he's won a ton of games at Georgia. He's got everything. You know, he's as good from the neck up as, as any kid I've been around in a long time. I've had, I've had a chance to sit down and watch tape with of Jake's tape with him and just kind of listen to him and what his thought processes were through, you know, certain decisions. And he, he's extremely smart. He's, uh, he's going to win over teams when he gets around him because he's got a real, you know, he's got a real guy's guy quality to him and leadership ability that, that uh, it's hard to find now. He's, he's really a gym rat. He loves football. He's always around it. Uh, he's just a real dude, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, he's, He's a, he's a guy that he's a guy that, that guys are going to want to be around, and uh, you know he, he's it? accurate. He's got sorry, he, I was he's, just... he's accurate. He's... Go ahead. No, no, sorry, I was just going to say. Obviously, as well, I think forgotten now, but led Georgia to the national championship game as a true freshman and and beat out another another kind of highly recruited kid that year as well for the for the job. I mean, I feel like people almost forget about that element at this stage. Yeah, no, in the end, it hasn't been lost on the NFL. When I talk to, you know, my buddies around the league, I mean, that's one of the things they keep talk, bringing up in their meetings is like, this guy, listen, this guy, you know, beat out Jacob Eason and he beat out Justin Fields. Um, he's a he's a real competitor. So, again, I, I, I go all the way back to when Drew Brees was coming out of uh, Purdue. A lot of people are making the Tua Drew Brees comparisons right now. I don't particularly see that as much as I see a lot of Jake Fromm and I, and Drew Brees uh, when Drew was at Purdue. I think they're very, very similar guys. I think they're wired similarly. I think their games are very similar. Um, so, no, I think Jake is, Jake's the one that people are sleeping on right now that, you know, he might go in the early second round, but, you know, three or four years from now, we could be asking ourselves how did Jake Fromm last that long. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's one I'm fascinated by. I mean, I've seen a lot of people compare Joe Burrow to, to Tom Brady, but Fromm to me feels like a another guy who would perfectly fit that, that period system in, in that mold as well. Yeah, I agree. No, I think, I think uh, New England would be a great fit for Jake. Um, again, cause he's so good from the, from the neck up. He's got, he's got the best eyes in this class. I mean, this guy really sees the field, knows where to go with the football. Uh, he's really next level in those areas. So that's why I think his game's really going to translate. Um, Really quickly, I think Jake's going to be able to get on the field really quickly at the next level for whoever drafts him. And and what what's your read on on tour? I mean, would he have been to you the the first guy off the board were it not for the injury? Uh, no, Burrow still would be, and I would and I would actually take Herbert uh, myself okay. before I would take before I would take Tua. I think uh, the durability thing is real. You know, yeah. I mean, it, you can't overlook it. Um, you know, it's a really violent league. It's a lot more violent than, than college football. Even the SEC, there's a, there's a big jump. And, uh, you know, a player's track record is what it is. I've worked for too many teams where, where you know, we've drafted players that get hurt in college and they get hurt in the pros and they have a hard time staying on the field. And, you know, you go back to Jake Fromm. I mean, the guy started 42 straight games at Georgia. Um, yeah. You know, Justin Herbert never missed a start at Oregon. Like, the, part of being a franchise quarterback is staying on the field. And, uh those guys have proven they can do it. And I just think from a talent standpoint, like you said, talking about, you know, we talked about big picture, evaluating everything around a player. Um, you stick Justin Herbert in, in Alabama's offense. And, uh, you know, I think he would have done incredible things. He really had to carry that Oregon team this year. I mean, was, as much as Jake Fromm had, uh, you know, had a letdown this year in terms of the people around him at Georgia, he was playing with better people on the field than uh, Herbert was at Oregon. Yeah. And and would there be a concern for you as well with Tua, not just in terms of the durability, but also the the kind of reckless abandon at times with which he plays, which is, you know, we've all seen the play that, the, the one against Tennessee, and uh, I think it was his, his, his first year of start where he rolls around and throws it to the corner of the end zone back across his body. But, you know, when you've got what is essentially would potentially be arguably one of the best wide receiver corps in the NFL around you at, at Alabama. You don't necessarily, and you shouldn't necessarily need to be 
putting yourselves in harm's way as often as he does. And it feels like that is a trait that that generally stays with players. I mean, you know, you mentioned being in Seattle. Russell Wilson is, to me, the prime example of somebody who is just exceptional at keeping himself out of harm's way, even when he is extending players very good at slime. But it, it didn't always feel like Tua had that. And, and is that something that you can coach into a player? Oh, it, 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 it's hard. Um, it's hard to take that aspect out of their game. Um, and I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's uh, another thing that concerns me about Tua is when he gets hit, what it looks like. You know, cer- certain players can absorb contact, um, and it just looks a certain way. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look as bad. Whereas Tua, when he, when he gets hit, uh, it, it, it can look like a car wreck at times. So, um, you know, some guys are just, you know, have a knack for falling, too. I mean, there's been yeah. a lot of players I've been around that just have a knack for going to the ground and, and staying healthy and other guys that go down and have, you know, have the unfortunate uh, knack of, of getting dinged up. So, no, Tua is a really talented player. Don't get me wrong. And I think if he stays healthy, he'll, he'll, he'll be a very good starting quarterback. But, um, you know, when you're asked to rank players, you got to, you know, you got to rank players. And, and I just see, I see Herbert and Burrow, um, you know, ahead of him at this stage. And, and really, I think Jordan Love has the highest ceiling of any of them. If you just, you just look from a pure passing standpoint and the natural tools and how easy he plays the game. Um, we could four years from now, we could talk, be talking about Jordan Love like he was, the, you know, he'd be the best one in this class. Senior Bowl Director Jim Nagy there speaking with our own Matthew Sherry. Uh, you've been listening to The Gridiron Show. We hope you're staying well. We hope you're staying safe. Please do stay home. Protect the NHS. Protect yourselves. Uh, and we do really appreciate your patronage and the time you spend with us. So thank you so much for listening at UK Gridiron on Instagram, at Gridiron on Twitter as well. This has been The Gridiron Show. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.